Hello and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Michelle Murray, Associate Professor of Politics at Bard College and author of The Struggle for Recognition in International Relations. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, the problem that you address in your book is essentially the insufficiency of the kind of standard story about um, power transitions in international relations. As you say in the introduction, the conventional wisdom on this can't fully explain why one power transition results in war and another may not. Can you just talk a little bit about the limits of, the, of that conventional story that we know and where you think the weaknesses are and then what, what new angle are you trying to come at it from? So the conventional story on power transitions, when you have a great power that's the kind of leading power in the system, ordering the system in terms of norms, institutions, ways of doing business, um, when that when one of that the leading power starts to decline and the rising power is emerging, the sort of canonical wisdom or the the standard story is that this is about capabilities and then it's kind of secondarily the interests that grow out of capabilities. So a rising power is dissatisfied with the status quo. It wants to change it. The existing power doesn't. You get war. I found, I think, two issues with this conventional wisdom. The first is empirical. It's just not the case historically that all power transitions operate this way. So for example, um, Imperial Germany, it, which is a case study in my book, is considered the kind of quintessential revisionist power, right? Maybe next to Nazi Germany. Um, they took a lot of land, they went to war, you know, they were meddling all over the place. But in reality, the United States conquered, I think, seven or eight times more territory than Imperial Germany in that period of time. And we don't think of the United States as a revisionist power. Uh, and so there was a kind of empirical anomaly, or there were empirical anomalies, right? It didn't seem like it explained everything. The second issue I have with the conventional wisdom is more of a theoretical point, an IR theory. Um, intervention, which is kind of behind this argument that materiality is what dri is driving this material interests, um, is a kind of logic of how the world works and what makes the world look a certain kind of way, which may, you know, that, that states fear each other, they can't trust each other, they fear each other's material capabilities, right? This is the logic that underlies that, that way of thinking. And what we see here is that, um, I think two things. The first is that states aren't necessarily operating that way, right? That there's a whole range of things. Sometimes states fear each other, sometimes they don't, right? That this idea of perceiving revisionism in another country, right? The U.S. Imperial Germany example um, is in the eye of the beholder, right? We construct these actions to mean something, um, so that's the kind of first limitation. And then the second is that we actually see states behaving in very unstrategic ways in these moments. And this, for me, is where Germany's battleship program is so interesting, because they essentially sacrifice security for what I think is the desire for status or recognition, right? So states take it too far. And I think the kind of so-called Mearsheimer tragedy of great power politics can't explain that because it's really self-evident. Um, the, the 
the leaders themselves know the trade-offs they're making, right? But they they go for the naval program instead of the army, for example. Um, and so it's really a kind of intervention, both on the empirical side, but also the theoretical side. And I guess I would say a third thing that motivates me in writing this book is these questions matter very much today, right? We're in the midst of an arguable power transition. And so um, what those things are about matters a great deal because that should shape foreign policy in important ways. I'm just going to pull a, a quote and ask you to kind of elaborate. You write, the logic of identity formation in anarchy means all rising powers will acquire symbolic military power despite its often questionable strategic utility and with its with its attendant security risks to reduce their social insecurity and obtain recognition of their identities. So just talk about where you think this identity formation comes from. What are its constituent parts? What, what even is major power status? So I think there are two elements to identity formation. Um, one is a domestic story, right? There are domestic discourses, histories, ways of thinking about a country, narratives that underpin how that state sees itself. Um, and so some you know, states at certain points in time understand themselves as major powers, that they want to be a country that is has a seat at the table. Some of that has to do with concrete military capabilities. You can't really be a great power or a major power without having power, right? Um, there are states that punch above their weight, Great Britain, for example, but they they're powerful, right? So, so there is, a, you know, military power, material power is a necessary but insufficient condition, I think, for major power status. So that identity comes from both a kind of recognition domestically of their material power, and then secondarily, a kind of narrative of what that means their role in the world should be. And what I'm saying is what their role in the world should be as a product of recognition, because you can't have that role unless the other actors in the system recognize you that way, right? You can't play that game unless everyone sees you as a player. And so it's that tension between how a country sees itself um, and how the rest of the, the actors on the world stage see them and whether they let them live the life that they want to live in the international sphere, essentially. Um, so you say that states that aspire to a certain identity in the, in the international community, uh, they perform what I think you call recognitive practices. Uh, what are those? Um, so I identify <clears throat> a couple of them, but but sort of basically recognitive practices are, are, they perform two functions. One, they are things that rising powers think will make other great powers notice them, right? Like, see, I'm walking and talking like a great power. I look like a great power. You should see me as a great power. So they signal something outward, right? They say, I'm I'm this kind of actor. I'm going to play this kind of role in the system. At the same time, there's an uncertainty in that, right? So they're asking for recognition. They're saying, look at me, look at my battle fleet, right? Um, we're powerful. See us as powerful. Um, 
but that's uncertain. They don't know that the recognition is going to be given to them. And so the second function that these recognitive practices um, fill is kind of giving the rising power the feeling like its identity can exist outside of that recognition. And for me, that's the tragedy of it, right? They, they adhere to these, they cling to these kind of symbolic practices as a way to sort of feel secure about who they are while they look to the international realm for recognition. Um, and those practices are great power voice. So they want to have a seat at the table. They want to be involved in managing the international order. Um, what I think is maybe most important or, or one of at least the most important is um, what I call exemplary military power. So they build not just strategic capabilities, but capabilities that often signal great power status. So at the turn of the 20th century, it was the battleship. Today, it might be the aircraft carrier, nuclear weapons, right? There are things, space program, right? There are kinds of capabilities, material things that only the most advanced powers can have, right? And so they want to have them to kind of show off that, conspicuous they're, consumption. that they're a great power. Yeah, exactly. Con conspicuous consumption. Um, and then another thing historically that great powers have are spheres of influence. And so they sort of have a, they have authority over spaces in the world, right? That, that are kind of their arenas to play in, to be the most powerful in. Um, and that, and by enacting those kinds of things, they feel secure in who they are, or they think they're going to feel secure in who they are. Um, it depends then on whether they're recognized or not. So if they're recognized, then sure, be a great power, right? You can do all those things legitimately. But if you're not recognized, all of those things then look revisionist and lead the existing powers to, 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 to try to contain it, right? To stop that from happening. So you've already kind of made at least implicit reference to this, but um, at one point you write, social uncertainty is at the center of the tragedy of great power politics. And that's clearly a reference to Mearsheimer and the realist school, particularly the offensive realists. Um, and later on in the book, you go on to argue that realism and constructivism are not as incompatible as many people seem to think. Can you just tease that out a bit? Yeah. So I think that, one, I should say I, I got my PhD at the University of Chicago, which my advisor, Alex Went, at one point re referred to me, it's the temple of realism, right? So like, this is where the great realists do their work, right? Mearsheimer is there, was there when I was there. So this is the, the, these are the ideas that are around me while I'm kind of coming up with this. Um, and so, yeah, the, the tragedy of great power politics is social uncertainty. For, so for the offensive realist, right, it's about material uncertainty. It's about not knowing what another state can do with its power to you, right? That leads you to make worst case decisions that ends up in this tragic outcome that nobody intended necessarily, right? And it, it can't be eliminated. It's a feature that can't be eliminated from the system. Um, so I think there's a similar kind of dynamic, except the uncertainty is about there is social, right? The uncertainty is about whether or not a state is going to be recognized. And what's tragic about it is that the things they do to feel better about that, right? To get them recognition um, risks having them 
um, constructed as revisionist powers that then need to be contained. And then it, it looks very much like a realist world at that point. Um, I think the kind of way that realism developed as an intellectual project, um, especially in its relationship to constructivism, is that realists were about war and conflict and constructivists were about you know peace and cooperation. And I think one of the things that I try to do in the book is to say that conflict is actually also deeply social and it grows out of deeply social anxieties, right? And so you can have a world that looks very much like the world Mearsheimer sees, but at the root of it is a kind of social um, cause, for lack of a better word. Um, and there's a big implication there, right? Um, which is if it is a social cause, then the like it's not inevitable in the same way that realists see it to be, right? So the world that I see when I look around, you know, is not an inevitability, right? There are moments, always moments for change. There's always moments for the production of new ideas. Um, the question is, where do those come from? How do they gain traction, right? Those are difficult questions, and and you know, emerging from conflict into cooperation is not simple or easy. And I'm not suggesting it is, but it's possible in a way that I think the realist story doesn't tell us. Um, you find insight into the the dynamics of identity and recognition in international politics in Hegel's parable of the master and the slave. Uh, can you tell us about that parable and how you think it applies? So it's sort of, I, I think it's a it's an alternative reading of a sort of state of nature. Um, I think for better or for worse, realists have sort of colonized the idea of the Hobbesian war of all against all, that this is what an anarchy produces, right? Whether that's an accurate reading of Hobbes or not, I'm not going to intervene on. It's what is kind of... Um, informally known, right? And so what I wanted to do is think about a kind of state, sort of state of nature parable that was about social uncertainty and not um, and not the sort of stylized reading that, that realists give of Hobbes. And so um, there, right, you see the master in this, you, you, it begins with these two consciousnesses that, that, that see each other, right? And they both want to kind of be dominated. It's, it's the struggle for recognition. And then eventually one dominates the other, they become the master and the slave. Um, and, and from there, I, I use a particular reading of the, the master-slave dialectic from Patch and Markel, who notes the kind of contradictions inherent to that and how those contradictions are given life or what he says, room to move, right? So they're able to kind of sustain themselves in spite of their impossibility, right? So you want your identity to exist outside of social relations. That's impossible, right? Identities are social. You can't make your own identity without recognition, but you try to feel like you can, right? The master tries to dominate the slave. Um, and, you know, in the story, the slave draws value from his work or his labor, right? And the master then ends up having to kill the slave because the slave can't actually provide him with the recognition that that he wants. Um, but, but at its root, what it is, is it's a story about a kind of anarchy, quote unquote, um, where social uncertainty is sort of animating conflict. Um, and I think that's a, you know, useful 
guide and broad strokes, right? I'm not sort of interested in the like intricacies of reading Hegel, but I'm interested in drawing out the kind of broader insight that social uncertainty can be an animating feature of an anarchic space. Uh, so one more question on this kind of this balance between material and discursive. Um, one of the cases you look at, uh, as you mentioned, and we're going to get into some of the cases, but uh, is Wilhelmine Germany and their naval expansion and, and aspirations to have their place in the sun, as they put it. And that's, of course, a classic case for people who work on issues like status and re reputation and so on. But you briefly discuss Bismarck, who, of course, preceded that era and has a reputation for, you know, being a prudent, rational, realpolitik and so on. And you say he was never seriously interested in pursuing a significant world empire, which he saw as contributing little, little to Germany's national security. And so that you've mentioned a number of times this difference between something that is uh, sticking to material interests and strategic and something that is discursive and therefore goes far afield of that. How do you explain the fact that some leaders come to power and are not sucked in by this discursive uh, nationalistic identity formation? So I think, honestly, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I start my story. Um, I want to tell a structural story. I want to tell a story about social uncertainty at a kind of structural level. In order to do that, I take my actors, right, the rising powers, um, once they've kind of made that bid. Um, and I can tell a story like, oh, there are these discourses that are circulating, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I kind of bracket that question. Um, and I don't, I think that's probably for other work to kind of figure out. So I don't have a good answer as to like, why is it, right, that some countries are captured by this way of thinking and others aren't. At the same time, I think there's good work like by Stephen Ward, who looks at the domestic politics of status seeking. And I don't think that those arguments are incompatible necessarily with, right, they, with mine, right? They, they, and there, there could be good work on think, kind of thinking through the relationship. Joshua Friedman has another um, argument, I think, that tries to understand this question, which I think is an important one. Um, it's just not one that I, tackle. I start from that my, my kind of starting line is that these states want this already. Um, and the Bismarck thing, it's also you you have to be a great power, like you have to be a great power before you can be a world power, right? And so right, it could right. be that, right, Bismarck has a different objective than that. Yeah, it's um, super complicated. I, I mean, I, it, it makes sense to me that people with proximity to the state are going to be more likely to kind of buy into the the ideational sort of identity around that uh, institution um, and maybe you just occasionally get lucky with, with a Bismarck. <laughs> um, <laughs> you write that uh, between 1890 and 1896, the U.S. abandoned its historically defensive military strategy and acquired the means necessary to take on a greater role in international affairs. Can you talk a bit about what motivated U.S. naval expansion at the end of the 19th century? So I think what's happening in the United States is there is this kind of historical distrust of a strong state, right? Because of its history as a as colonies and whatnot. Um, 
And so there's not a kind of strong federal government necessarily. Um, at the same time, the U.S. is busy conquering the continent during, you know, that Mearsheimer's right, you know, in his piece, The the Gathering Storm, he he talks about the United, rise of the United States as a, as a analog, right, to China, um, right? The U.S. Is, is highly expansionist during that period, but they're expansionist not on a kind of global level. And I think, you know, they kind of hit the, the other water's edge, they solidify the continent, and then they look outward. I think at the same period of time, there is a global discourse, right? There's the kind of navalist, there's Mahan, there's, there's this way of thinking about what it means to be a major power that involves naval power. Um, and so I think that's really like, it's the idea that's driving the US at that point in time. And, you know, there's also a domestic story to tell, which I don't really go into about the role of these navalists. And there's great history histories written about this. Um, the role of these ideas, um, how they gain traction and kind of capture interests. But um, for me, what's really important is that kind of Mahanian way of thinking about what a world power is or what a great world power is um, that you see, right? Germany's being captured by those same ideas as um, the United States is at around the same time. And so I think it's, it's a kind of way of thinking about power in the world and what's necessary to be influential. Um, and going back to these recognitive practices, you, you talk about the Venezuela crisis, the Spanish-American War, um, U.S. administration of the Panama Canal as opportunities that the U.S. took to kind of demonstrate these practices and seek uh, a certain status. Um, what happened in those instances and how does it contrast with Britain's reaction to Germany's status-driven expansionism? So I think... What happens there is you get the Venezuelan crisis um, around 1896, um, and there's talk, right? There's a lot of war talk at that point in time, um, where you know we're going to go, where that the U.S. and the U.K. could go to war. Um, and what happens is there's a kind of way of thinking about the in the kind of realm of ideas there's a way in which leaders start to reconstruct the relationship discursively by framing the united states and um the uk as sort of anglo-saxon brothers cousins right we're all part of the great anglo-saxon race um right that way of thinking about the world which also has a lot of um connections to darwinism social darwinism which is really popular at the time as well and which is a rationale for expansion um there's a way in which leaders are able to construct the relationship. And it's in those moments that I actually think it's, there's a lot of agency, right? Is how can a, how can a savvy leader actually take a situation and construct it in a way um, to make new things possible? Um, and so what you see then as, as the kind of decade unfolds with the Spanish American war, you see the UK sort of sitting out of it. Um, basically not getting involved in moments where it could get involved um, to, to restrain the United States, to kind of um, push these other European powers out of the story. Um, and then that all kind of crystallizes with the Panama Canal, where the U.S. achieves essentially its Western hegemony, right? It becomes a hegemon in the Western hemisphere. So Britain kind of accedes to this. And that case is interesting because there's there's moments of negotiation where it's clear that 
how exactly the U.S. is framing Britain is really important, right? Britain's care to, it's kind of turned upside down where Britain is worried about respect and disrespect and and being framed in, in the right possible kind of way. This is really different than the series of crises that happened before World War I with the UK and Germany, where there are these kind of really insignificant squabbles about Morocco, right? The first and second Moroccan crisis, the um, Bosnian crisis. They, these are about inconsequential pieces of territory, right? Where the Germans feel disrespected, right? They don't get that sphere of, like if they were recognized, they'd, they'd be entitled to the sphere of influence, right? The, the um, international agreements that govern these geographies would be upheld, but they're disrespected. They're not given a seat at the table. Um, and what I try to show in the book is how that spirals, right, over time, that really it's those kind of small acts of misrecognition that over time just cut, like gain a ton of significance. They lead to a way of thinking about the other that becomes entrenched. And so, you know, in contrast to the US case where there's moments of creativity, where ideas are able to be floated and given traction um, to make peace possible. And I guess I'll also say a lot of that has to do with the discursive world in which you live, right? The ideas have to be out there. You can't necessarily invent them wholesale. So like US leaders, British leaders had a lot to work with discursively to do that work. Your theory specifically is just about, I mean, you stick to power transitions, but you also indicate that, you know, this this kind of thing influences policy in a lot of places. And you don't talk about it uh, too much in the book, but I wonder what you think of the formative period of of the U.S. in the Second World War and and slightly after. I feel like, uh, to some extent, the... Uh, the, the United States gained a, a slightly different status at that point and identity, and we're still kind of lingering on it to drive policy today in ways that are unstrategic or not really keeping close to material calculations of interests and resources. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the moment really where the U.S. emerges, if I were to sort of create a hierarchy of identities as this thing called a superpower, which is even bigger than a world power, right? And I think it really crystallizes around the Soviet Union and the United States at that point in time. Um, There, I think the U.S. has a lot of recognition, right? I mean, it's a victor of the war. Europe is depending on it. You know, they're, they're looking to the U.S. to come here, save us, right? There's a lot of recognition. Um, going on. And I think in that formative period, there is a, you know, it's not one that I study necessarily, but I do think that that's where that identity is kind of superpower. And really that's the question about who rules the world, right? Is it going to be us or, or them? And I, I do think the United States today is still struggling with that question, right? There's a sense in which the United States thinks it's, it's in the same kind of place um, as far as status goes that I, I don't think it is, right? So you also it, you also think that these dynamics play out in, uh, you wrote about a couple of them, but um, actually I'd like to hear your take on any of these that you, have, you want to talk about, but especially nuclear nonproliferation. You, you talk about World War One and these dynamics and what might have been kind of the driver behind Imperial Japan's expansion 
but also the nuclear nonproliferation regime. Can you talk a bit about those? Yeah. So, you know, as far as nuclear nonproliferation goes, I think that um, it's an interesting, if you, if you want to use the word kind of recognition orders or, or, you know, international orders as recognition systems or something like that. Um, the nuclear nonproliferation treaty has like a, a neat little trick in it, which is in order to get status, you have to promise not to have nuclear weapons. So it does two things simultaneously, right? It esteems them as the property of these great powers, these five, you know, P5 members, right? UN Security Council membership as well. Um, but at the same time, it stigmatizes them, right? So anyone else who wants to be a legitimate power cannot um, pursue nuclear weapons as a, as a mode to to status. So it's really designed to entrench a particular configuration of power, right? To, to give prestige to a particular set of states. Um, and so I, I think what you see with a lot of proliferators is using those weapons, using the, the nuclear weapon as a way to signal its status in the system. Um, and, you know, I think certainly the case with Iran, right, is, is saying, um, we're a great Persian empire, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of the similar kind of talk, right? There's sort of tropes and, and frameworks that get recycled over time, right? You, they reach back to their greatness in history and they want to project that greatness into the future. And they see the weapon as a way of doing that. Um, you know, there's a narrow story where you can say they, they want that weapon because they want to deter attacks. And I'm sure that's part of the story, right? No doubt, right? Nuclear weapons are really powerful deterrents. But at the same time, I think they're also imbued with all of the social power that they, you have to notice me if I have this thing, right? Um, and then that's tragic and then it doesn't work out, right? You become North Korea where you're, where you're a rogue, right? Which I think is, you know, to to kind of jump to another case, I think that's that when Trump went to North Korea, he was giving Kim Jong-un a ton of recognition, right? Um, as a way, uh, I, I don't know if there was a strategic purpose to it, but he was getting, you know, North Korea as a state was getting a lot of, of recognition in, in that moment inadvertently. Okay, let's talk about the power transition most foreign policy wonks are currently worried about. Uh, that's China. Talk about what's driving China's increasingly bold foreign policy. So I think that China has all of the ingredients to be an aspiring, you know, major power, superpower. It's it's a great power. I think China is a great power, right? So we wouldn't deny that. It wants to be on par or equal to, and I guess that that's an element of power transitions, right? They states, rising powers don't want to just be recognized as powerful. They want to be recognized as equal to the established powers. Um, and so China has power, right? It's, its economy is growing. It's able to translate, right? The realist story is right. It's able to translate that economic power into military might. Um, but it also has a set of narratives about a kind of status lost, right? A set of narratives about its place, um, in the world, right? Um, humiliation, um, I think is a, is a huge kind of discourse that's operating and, and great power status, world power status, 
superpower status would be a way to restore China to its historical greatness. And so I think we see both things operating, right? There's power and then there is there are narratives that aspire to put China into a major power role. Does China want something other than recognition? So, I mean, I think China wants a lot of things. Um, but I mean, if we're trying to think about how to handle, well, how to avoid conflict, how to maintain the peace, um, I can imagine, well, it's hard to imagine US leaders just being willing to recognize China's identity for itself and have a less antagonistic approach. But if there's a way to get the US and maybe some other states to recognize China in this or that way, uh, can that mitigate the conflict-prone nature of this situation? So I think there are a couple of complicating factors to that, that make... I, I'm actually rather pessimistic. I'm, I'm hopeful, but pessimist like looking out in the world like looking at the Biden administration pessimistic about us being able to do that i think one of the complicating factors is that china's sphere of influence is populated with us allies um and so if we're going to recognize them as this major power presumably one of the things we do according to my argument is allow them to have a sphere of influence and so that immediately raises the question of what that means for our close allies, right? Um, are we going to abandon? I am less worried about Taiwan. I think would probably be less of a give. You know, that would be easier to give away. But um, you know, Japan, South Korea, like right? Those are all. There's an intra, there's an intra regional dynamic as well, right? That makes us kind of stepping away and saying China can can have the region. Um, very difficult. The other thing I think is that there's to be able to recognize another country involves the established power having a conversation with itself about its own identity. And I'm not sure that the way American identity is constructed, particularly since the end of the Cold War, that it allows right now for that possibility because to recognize China would be to destabilize the American sense of self. Um, and the U.S. is not going to do that because its identity is built so fundamentally on primacy, essentially, right? That, they, that we rule the world singularly. Um, and, and so I don't see a ton of room um, within U.S. foreign policy discourses to make recognition possible. The China case, I think your argue, your book sheds a lot of light on that because when I look at it, oftentimes what I see is people concerned about China and tending towards a more containment strategy, um, but kind of unable to identify a threat. You know, people call it revisionist, and then are unable to say specific aspects of the order that China would like to change. In fact, this is even true of people who kind of favor a more diplomatic route. I had Jessica Chen Weiss on the podcast. And I said, what does China want to change about the system? How How is it they're, that they're revisionist? And I think what, to my memory, listeners can go back to the episode, to my memory, what she said is, oh, they really, they want to reemphasize sovereignty. And I was like, well, actually, that's a conservative principle when it comes to world order. Uh, what is it that they want to revise, et cetera? And it's just hard to point to anything. It's more 
discomfort with the rise in power and an inability to point to something specific uh, that we need to challenge. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that completely. You, if you actually look at what China wants and where a, a lot of times China bumps up against the United States, it's things like humanitarian intervention, right? It's the protection of sovereignty. In many ways, Ch what China wants is a 1945 world order, right? Where sovereignty is more of a solid regime of protection, um, et cetera, which isn't to say that China isn't, you know, going to violate anyone's sovereignty. But I do think that they have a more kind of conservative understanding of world order that kind of goes back to a time before. And that's why I think the problem of China's rise, quote unquote, is a problem with US, right? It's, it, this is about US anxiety, and it's about US identity. It's the fact that the United States is no longer committed to a 1945 world order, right? We're committed to something else, at least discursively. Um, and I, I don't know how you change that without kind of working domestically to change the way that we understand our role in the world. Um, that's the first step, right? US, US, the United States self-concept has to change in order for us to be able to recognize China. It's not, oh, China needs to do X, Y, or Z to be a better state or to be less revisionist. Um, we have to work on ourselves. <laughs> actually. Yeah, it's a bit contrary to the standard story that the established power is the revisionist one and the rising mm -hmm. power is the, yeah. is the conservative one. Um, with respect to this kind of applying uh, a lot in U.S. foreign policy, uh, I kind of wanted to ask something of a semantic question. You know, since the discursive is such an important element in your theory, I get a little curious about the use of, of words and how language changes. You know, so for example... When you're writing about the Spanish-American War, you cite Theodore Roosevelt saying that after the sinking of the Maine, we can't avoid intervening in Cuba if we are to retain what he calls our self-respect as a nation. So I think today that same sentiment exists in U.S. leadership and motivates many U.S. interventions, but they would probably word it differently, you know, not honor or self-respect, but, you know, uh, uphold deterrence or because our credibility will weaken do you see these as the same basic sentiment, just different lingo? I mean, I think that there is the kind of discourse that I would point to today as a discourse of American exceptionalism. And so I think there's a sense in which the United States, you know, claims to stand for certain kinds of things, right? And what's a threat to that is our credibility to defend democratic allies, our credibility to, you know, be committed to a certain kind of economic world order or, or something like that. And so I think the kind of specific vocabulary shifts over time, right? Um, and, and discourses aren't static things. They're always changing and evolving. Um, they're insidious, right? They, they invade concepts and take them over. And so, you know, I think it would be interesting to sort of think about deterrence or credibility as a struggle for recognition. Um, it's not something I had thought about before, but yeah, I, I think that those things are signifiers of a certain, certain idea of America in the world. Okay. Last question. I know we have uh, some number of uh, IR students uh, in, in our listening audience. Um, and you talk about how uh, kind of your argument suggests 
a revision to that's needed for the security dilemma. Talk a little bit about what the security dilemma is and how your story uh, kind of alters it. So I think the traditional security dilemma is really a story about two states that want nothing but security and self-defense, right? They don't want anything else. And they look at the other state and they see that the other state has some power that that state has built to defend itself. And it says, what is, you know, state B says, what does state A want? What are they going to do with that power? I don't know. So I better build, build some power. And then state A says, what? Why is state B building power? And you get this kind of spiral where, um, you know, the things that you do to, the, right, the dilemma is that the actions you take to secure yourself actually make you insecure. You act as if you are revisionist when you have no intention of doing any such thing. Um, I think kind of building that, you know, there's a, there's now a very rich literate constructivist literature about, I think the social dimensions of the security dilemma. Um, Jennifer Mitson's work on ontological security is, is trying to rethink how security dilemmas sustain themselves. Right. And they sustain themselves. She says, because states become attached to the role of competitor. It becomes who they are. Like, who are they if they're not, you know, arms racing with the Soviet Union? Um, and so I think there's, you know, for me, the security dilemma is social. I think I, in the book, I call it dilemmas of social insecurity or, or something like that. But, you know, I think there's a lot of threads through which the security dilemma is actually about social uncertainty. Um, and the ways in which states cope with that, and then the kind of physical security dilemmas that that creates for them, right? And so there's a tension in some ways, the dilemma is between social and physical security. Like, sometimes you can't have both of those things, right? The things that you do to become socially secure, make you physically insecure. Um, and then, you know, from the ontological security perspective, you become attached to that, um, because it provides you with social security. and so you kind of reproduce that, that spiral, that tragic spiral in the classic security dilemma. Yeah. Uh, just broadly as someone who has tried to uh, mess around with the foreign policy discourse in DC, uh, my impression is that these things really are discursive. Uh, if you're arguing foreign policy with someone um, and you can't get past their the premises that they hold about the identity and role and purpose behind American foreign policy, it's hard to make any headway one way or the other. Uh, Michelle Marie, thank you very much for coming on to join us today. Thank you, my pleasure.